Dear Father, we thank you, Father, for prophecy. We thank you for the books of Scripture that tell us about things to come. Because, Father, we know it is, uh, it is something that attracts us. It gives us confidence in you and in your word to see things fulfilled. And it gives us an excitement to know more and, and to get closer to you in your word. And we thank you for that benefit, Father. Thank you that you have blessed us with scenes of the future and an understanding of what your plans are and purposes in those things. Um, Father, we ask you to caution our hearts as we listen. You give us a concern for the things that matter in these matters, in these uh, future matters, and not simply, Father, to be excited by the knowledge of things that is uh, secret and that is uh, not widely understood. I pray, Father, you would give us a heart to really understand what your purpose is uh, for us in knowing these things. Now, we weren't just students for the, the sheer accumulation of this knowledge. And, Father, though I may have my own ideas on where and how we put what we learn to work, Father, it's ultimately the Spirit who leads us in those ways. So I pray, Father, that each heart would listen carefully and would be uh, attentive to you more than me and then would be uh, obedient to what they've been told by you. And even if I should offer a a path that's different, Father, I pray that you would uh, speak over that into their hearts. Um, Most of all, Father, as we learn these things, I do pray, Father, that you have uh, caused in each of our hearts uh, a quickening, uh, a sincere understanding of the short days we live and in which we live. And in the world we see falling apart, Father, that we won't just sit by idly and and concern ourselves only with what you've promised to us, but that we would have a heart that wants to share that with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the part of the book of Ezekiel where the Lord is showing how he's going to fulfill all the promises that he's made to Israel concerning their future glory. He's spoken to them over centuries, over millennia through his prophets, telling them that he had a plan for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants. And the promises that God said he would give to the people who descend from those three men, which we, broadly speaking, we call that the Abrahamic covenant, the promises that were in that covenant, God is going to fulfill to Israel in the future. And The chapters we're in now, starting in chapter 35 and moving onward into the end of the book, are the chapters in this book in which God speaks to an Israel that's in captivity, currently in desperation as their city is being destroyed and as they see their way of life taken from them. God is yet speaking to them in the midst of that, saying, Oh, but hold on, there's a glory coming at the end. And He is giving them that counterweight to to what they're experiencing in this day of their life and in their time. And the promises that you find in the Abrahamic Covenant can be grouped into four general promises. I would include in that the Davidic Covenant. So the Abrahamic Covenant and what comes out of that is the Davidic Covenant. Those covenants have basically four general promises to Israel's descendants. Uh, First, a king would rule over them. That's the Davidic Covenant. Secondly, they would have an inheritance in land, in terms of land. They would inherit land. Third, they would live together as one people in one nation in peace and in prosperity, obviously in the land, and then fourthly, that God would dwell among them. God's presence would be among them in that place. They would be his people. He would be their God. Four promises. As you remember from the handout I gave you last week, that's the one with the green color. As you look from chapter 33 onward to the end of the book, you realize that what God is saying in these chapters is I'm going to fulfill everything that I said in that covenant, all four aspects of it, and he does it through a series of chapters that explain how. Uh, last week we studied the restoration of Israel's inheritance in the land, and that's chapters 35 and 36. Prior to that we had studied how God will raise up a shepherd, a king, who would rule over them. That was chapters 33 and 34. And I put those little icons on the right there to help you see that. King and then inheritance of land, Uh, Last week in chapter 35, we studied how the Lord said he was going to invalidate any competing claim to that promised land. And then you remember to make the point, he pronounced judgment on the people who had the oldest competing claim, which was the Edomites. Because Edomites come from Esau. Esau is the one who fought with his brother Jacob over the inheritance of Isaac. That's where that division started. And ever since, the Edomites and others have come along and said that land is ours. Today the Palestinians say it's ours. There's always been some group that's saying it's ours. God's going to invalidate all those claims because only Israel will receive the inheritance that he has planned. But he judged Edom in that one chapter as a poster child to simply illustrate that no one's going to gain this land, not even the ones who have the oldest claim to it, apart from Israel. 
That was chapter 35. Chapter 36 we studied and saw Israel's inheritance in the land will be a very different way of life than it has been in years prior. The Lord will regather Israel, we heard. All Jews that are alive and living on earth will all live in the same place. They'll all be in the same nation. No, no Jews living outside the land in this future time. Secondly, the nation will be fully committed to obeying the Lord, and they will never sin, which will tell us, of course, that they're all glorified by this point, whenever this comes. And then we learn that the return of Christ will be accompanied by a national salvation of all Jews on earth at that time, at the end of tribulation. That's where we left last week. So those three things work together in terms of inheritance, that God will create a land for his people, and he will prepare his people to enter into it without sin. All right, then we studied, if you remember, parts out of Isaiah where we looked at the life of what the kingdom will be like in that land. What is the land going to be like? What's the nation going to be like? We learned that death will operate differently. Nature will be different. Animals will be different. The fruitfulness of the land will be different. Uh, and even in just the small things we studied last time, it becomes apparent why the Bible says that the time of the kingdom will be a time of joy. It's just very different than what we know now. Tonight we're going to finish a little part of chapter 36 that we didn't cover last week. That moves us into the next major category of restoration from land now to a nation of people living in the land in peace. That's chapters 37 and 38. But first, let's go to the end of chapter 36. That picks up in verse 29. The Lord says, Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confound for your ways, O house of Israel." If you were to back up for a moment to the beginning of chapter 36, just as an outline, in this chapter, the Lord promises Israel they're going to get their land inheritance, like we've discussed, and it comes in a new way. But the Lord gives Israel seven details for how that fulfillment is going to take place. And in what we studied last week, we saw five of them. What we studied tonight in this last section, we get the last two. So what were the five from last week? Well, first he says, I've got to regather you. Secondly, he says, I've got to purify sin from you so that you don't bring your sin nature into this new place. Third, I've got to give you a new heart and a new spirit so that you will obey me from that point forward. Fourthly, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you so that you'll always know me and follow me intimately. And then fifth, he says, I will be your God, you will be my people. That will be our shared identity. And then in verse 29, as I just read, we reach the sixth detail of the land being restored. He says the land will give people an abundance of harvest and a famine will never occur, which is a very big contrast to the past history of Israel. Anytime Israel was walking off from the Lord and disobedient, famine was one of the first things the Lord would turn to as a way of, dis- of uh, disciplining Israel. He would stop the rains and the famines would follow, right? And you can study this throughout the Old Testament. Uh, now that's never going to happen, which we understand because Israel's never going to be sinning again. So there's no need for the famines anymore. But think about that from human terms. No matter how often you go out, year after year after year, your fields are going to produce reliably every year. No famine, no pestilence, nothing's ever going to go wrong. I mean, this is a very different lifestyle than what we've known before, certainly since the fall. And if you notice the pattern that the Lord is establishing here, going back to the summary I just gave you, first he cleanses his people of sin, then he leads them in righteous living by his Spirit, and then out of righteous living, the people come to enjoy the comforts and privileges of their intimate walk with Christ. Do away with sin, walk in righteousness, gain the benefits thereof. And that is how it works with the Lord all the time. This is just the ultimate vision of it, the ultimate fulfillment of it. But on an individual basis, that's also the pattern of Scripture. Because at its core, sin is any attempt to enjoy the comforts and the privileges of God's provision without giving him our obedience. So sin is wanting for the good things that God makes available to us without the obedience that is the prerequisite for those good things. I mean, the garden is the classic example, right? They wanted the fruit without the obedience. And in this case, there was one fruit that wouldn't be possible if you were to obey. They wanted the fruit without the obedience. So the first sin began that way. Every sin that's ever come after that has gone basically the same way. 
And the Lord says in this future day of Israel, we won't have that problem anymore. And then finally, the seventh detail of the land restoration is found in verses 31 through 32, where the Lord says that the nation has received all these things, and as they have, they will remember their past history. They'll remember how they were disobedient in the past and how their forerunners, their forefathers, had sinned against the Lord in all the ways that we studied in the first part of this book. And then notice what he says. They'll loathe themselves in their own sight for those iniquities. To loathe yourself in your own sight means to see yourself as God saw you in that past situation. To be able to take his perspective concerning what was going on in the past and to see it from his point of view. So while everyone in Israel will be marveling at how much better things are in that time in the kingdom, they'll also be able to recall how bad they had made life for themselves in the past because of their sin against God. They'd seen it from God's point of view. Now, if you can see your sin from God's point of view, what do you notice among other things? Well, you certainly loathe it, but you can also understand the justice of God's response. In other words, you don't look back on it and say, Uh, I feel bad about it. In a sense, you can glorify God because of two things. You can glorify God for his just response. Justice is a good thing. But you can also glorify him for his grace because as you think about those things, look where you're standing in the kingdom and for no reason of your own, only by grace. So in retrospect, they loathe. You know, the word there is a strong word, but it shouldn't be understood as such that you think people are suffering and miserable and unhappy in the kingdom. That's not the sense of it. The sense of it is you can look back and see it with wisdom that God has so that you're not misunderstanding it as you do on this side of it, right? Because on this side of it, we all have sin, and yet the amount we acknowledge is probably the tip of an iceberg in our hearts, right? And the reason we can't go deep is because it would probably crush us if we could see our sin in the way God sees it on this side of, of heaven, right? Not saying we shouldn't try, just saying that in that day we'll have that perfect understanding. And in its understanding, we come to glorify God, not to condemn ourselves, nor to shrink back from what God's brought us in glory. It just fits. Okay, in verse 32, the Lord says, These promises that he's revealed in Ezekiel's day, in the time he lived, would serve to make Israel ashamed for their sin. Now that's an important distinction. If you look at verse 32, he moves from the future tense to the present tense. Present tense to Ezekiel's time, to the time that this was written. So what the Lord is saying is, in the future, you'll loathe yourselves in your own sight. You'll be able to understand these things from my perspective. But he says in verse 32, now that you're hearing about what's coming, now that you're hearing me say to you, in a future day, I'm going to be faithful to you, even though you were not faithful to me, that makes Israel in Ezekiel's day feel convicted, ashamed, to understand that God's faithfulness only serves to highlight their rebellion in this moment. So upon hearing about how much goodness he has planned for them, they feel all the more shame for what they've done. All right? And then we have the final summary of Israel living in the land one day. That's in verses 33 through 38. He says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am the Lord. All right, so last week, you remember we studied out of Isaiah some of the changes to nature and to life in the kingdom during this time. We'll come back to some of that later if you missed it. But in what we listened to last week, we noted that there was going to be this step-by-step return to a way of life that is more in keeping with what we saw in the Garden of Eden than we see today. And that's in God's purposes. I heard one person explain one time how God is moving us through a period of restoration because the things that were lost in the fall was the spirit of man went into a time of death, if you will. Paul calls it a, a dead spirit. That is, we are rebellious and fallen and, and separated from God in our spirit, which led to the curse on the earth, which God pronounced afterward. That's what brought about physical death. That's what brought about the corruption of the earth. 
the second law of thermodynamics. Everything moves from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. That's all a result of the curse God put on the earth. So we lost the soul. We lost the physical life on earth. And because he cursed the earth, it also means that the creation itself is under a curse, which means it must be put away with and replaced. So you have the human being, you have the, the spirit, rather, you have the flesh, and then you have the whole earth. So God's got to fix all three of those, and he's doing them in stages. The first of those to get fixed is what? Just as a short moment of Q&A. What's the first of those things that God works to fix? The spirit, as you come to faith. What's the second? Well, it's not just your body, right? But it's that resurrection, your body. But beyond that, let's just sum it all up as nature. He's got to restore nature back to the place it was before the curse. But ultimately, the earth itself is under a curse. So the last thing that will get replaced is the heavens and earth. In the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21. So by the time we get to Revelation 22, he's fixed all three problems. But he's doing it in stages over a very long period of time. Right? So... We are still waiting for stage two, that is when the realm of nature starts to be changed and life doesn't require death anymore for at least some of us. All right, that's where we're going next. And what we studied a little bit last week out of Isaiah were some of the effects of that number two change where we saw the wolf and the lamb laying down together. Uh, Predator-prey relationships you won't see anymore. Uh, you won't see animal, animals hurting people anymore, as we heard. And you won't see men in, in worry that they plant and someone else will take their harvest or they'll build a house and someone else will take it from them. So you don't see injustice anymore. So those are some of the changes we hear coming in the kingdom. Here you see the Lord confirming he's going to restore life in ways, notice, similar to the Garden of Eden, he mentions in verse 35. That's not just some casual comparison. I think that's indicative of what we're saying here, that God is purposely moving us back to a place that he wanted us to be in the beginning when he created man and woman, to a place where these things all exist. And he says then the way he will do it, you notice he says he's going to make it happen in such a miraculous way that it will clearly point to him. So great desolation, he says, will turn into great blessing. A transformation that will be done supernaturally by a caring and purposeful God and done in such a way that it points to him and everyone else can see that he is doing it. He'll be seen as the actor making it come to pass and people will glorify him for it. Now, what you're hearing is this. If you step back in biblical history for just a moment and look at it in its fullness, you come to realize that in the whole of biblical history, great miracles uh, only happen a few times in history as a rule. In other words, as a regular pattern. Apart from the creation moment itself, there have been three other times in history when God has relied on great public displays of supernatural power. And in all cases, it was for the same purpose, that he would make himself known, either to one nation or to all nations. The first of those was at the Exodus. So at the Exodus, you obviously know all of the... You've seen the movie, right? So you know all of what happens in that situation. And in Exodus 7, 5, we read this. He says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Right? So it's, a, it's his calling card to do these miracles in a demonstrative way over a period of time. The next period of history in which you see him resorting to this is in the days of Elijah and Elisha, when the Lord performed miraculous signs routinely through those prophets, fire down from heaven, raising dead bodies, holding back rain, so on. And there again, he's demonstrating himself to an apostate Israel, and if you look at the lives of those two prophets, they parallel in many ways the life and work of Jesus in his first and second coming. So there's a bit of picturing of Jesus in that. And then finally, the miracles done in Jesus' day, and in the few years following in the early years of the church, all of that time is another of these public periods of miraculous display. But when you think about it, they're the exceptions that prove the rule, which is to say it almost never happens. That God is prone to these things only in certain periods of history when it matters to him and when he needs to use them to make his name known. So to date we've had three of these periods. Where there's a fourth coming according to scripture which will be the period of tribulation in the very last period of this age when great signs and wonders are done throughout the earth. And here again it's to make himself known to the earth. But as we await the resumption of those displays, not that we will be here to see them, but as we know they're coming... Just consider then for a moment that we've been living as part of a long period of history in which these displays have not been regular. And when you hear him saying, I'm going to make these changes in such a way that people will see that I have done them, what you need to understand is he's foretelling another of these periods. And because we've lived in such a long period of history when supernatural displays are not common, uh, I think it's easy for us to read these things and they don't feel quite real to us or we tend to think of them only in natural ways. Like natural things will happen to restore the cities. But when the Lord says he does it in a way that it clearly points to him, he's telling you that this is a moment in which he wants his hand to be seen demonstrably, 
among the nations in a very visible way. And it's interesting to think about the fact that we are probably a relatively short period of time, historically speaking, a relatively short period of time, away from seeing regular, massive, worldwide displays of God's supernatural power. Get used to it. It's going to make the special effects of Hollywood look like nothing compared to what God said is coming. And I think God prefers to make himself known through supernatural means on these selective, in these selective moments because our God is a God of resurrection. Fundamentally, he's a God that brings dead things back to life. That's what he's in the business of doing. And that's why he prefers to make himself known in those moments, when Jesus resurrected, when you saw nations being brought back from nothing. And in the very last verse of this chapter, he says that filling the dead, desolate land with living people will testify to his name. That's what a God of resurrection wants to do. And of course, on an individual basis, by faith, he's bringing dead things back to life. And as a nation, he's bringing Israel back to life. And in the long run, he's bringing the whole of his creation back to life. All right, so let's transition from his promise for the land inheritance now, which we just finished, into his promise for peaceful habitation of a nation of people who descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the next element in the Abrahamic promise. We've done king, we've done land, now we have people. All right, chapter 37, we start with another vision, which explains the work of God for Israel in this third area of his promises. Verse 1, he says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them, round about, And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, And put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked and behold sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus says the Lord God come from the four winds O breath and breathe on these slain and they will come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is probably the best-known chapter in Ezekiel. Even You know, it's funny, people know this chapter and they don't know it's in Ezekiel. Right? The dry bones chapter. They've heard something of it. I think there's a song, isn't there? So, uh, it's... But you know what? Like most of what people have studied in this book, it's studied in isolation, which is never good. And for that reason, it may be one of the most abused sections of the book. Uh, The range of interpretations you will find concerning this chapter range from misinformed to ridiculous. And it's just a consequence of taking it out of context, among other things. So let's start by explaining the illustration here that God gives Ezekiel. Then we'll look at the interpretation that the Lord himself provides. The Lord gives the prophet a vision, starting with a wide valley. And then, of course, in the valley, you have scattered bones everywhere. I want you to notice, he says, the valley, not a valley, which would indicate this is a valley he's seen before and he's told us about before. Sure enough, the last time he mentions a valley is in chapter 3. The chapter 3, verse 22, I'm referring to, he says, The hand of the Lord was on me there, and he said to me, Get up, go out to the plain, and there I will speak to you. So I got up and went out to the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory which I saw by the river Kebar, and I fell on my face. Well, the word translated plain there is the same word in Hebrew for valley. It's the same place. So this is the place now that he has once before been in a previous vision where God showed him his glory near the very beginning of his prophetic ministry. So he recognizes the place. It's not that the place has significance. The point is God is saying, here yet again is a vision I want you to understand. And we're going back to the place where you saw my glory before. So this is attached to my glory, if you will. And he directs him, I want you to walk around, take a look at the bones. So he's, he's got this kind of morbid task now of walking around a valley filled with human bones. And he says they're dry, right? Which would mean that they died a long time ago. They've been out there for a while. In fact, it's been so long, the Lord even asked Ezekiel, do you think these bones could live again? And instead of giving a yes or no, he defers to the Lord. He says, you know, basically, you're the only one who could know this. This is a question only you could answer. And the reason, of course, is because only the Lord could do it. So it's more about his will, not his ability. 
He's saying, do you want to do it? So then the Lord says to Ezekiel, yes, you're going to help me, so to speak. You're going to, I want to speak through you. Prophesy over these bones. Declare to them what I plan to do for them. And in verses 5 and 6, you know, you see the story. They're going to come back to life. Now you notice the description, though, involves the physical life of a human being being restored in steps almost like a factory, almost like an assembly line. Okay? One part of the body repaired, and then another part of the body added on top of that, and eventually you end up with this body that's not alive, but it's fully back intact. And as as the Lord tells Ezekiel what to say, then he does it, as you see in verses 7 and 8, and as he does it, it all happens in front of him. You can watch it happening, he says. Finally, the Lord says, okay, now we've got to make these bodies alive, so I want you to call the breath to come into them. And as he does, they stand up, and as they come to life, they're united into a single army. One single large organization standing together. That's the end result. All right, that's the observation. So what does it all mean? Well, before we look at what comes next in this passage, because the Lord does give us his own, if you will, interpretation of it, let's see if we can match up to his interpretation on our own. And we'll just do that by looking at some of the details in the text. All right? First, the fact that the restoration of those bodies is happening in such an unrealistic fashion tells us this must be illustrating something else. That is to say, this is not a prediction of literal human beings being brought back to life, a la resurrection, for example. And the reason is because resurrection doesn't happen this way. The Bible's clear about that. 1 Corinthians 15, among other places, makes clear that resurrection is an instantaneous act of God. And not from the original material of your dead body. That's a myth. I don't know why that's still floating in the church. But no, you're back to dust. What God used to create the first, Paul says, is different than what he uses to create the second. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. So what's used to create the second is an altogether new source of material that God provides for that second body. But it happens instantaneously. All right. So we have to be careful as you look at an illustration like this to notice the details here and to keep track of what is metaphor and what is reality. And what I mean by that is this. It's very common in, in misunderstandings of Scripture, in misinterpretations. When you're looking at parables or when you're looking at metaphors, it's very common for you to try to map what is in the metaphor to what is reality. What's it, what's it standing for? You know, What does this detail stand for? What does this detail stand for? Well, that's correct. You are supposed to do that. But what people will sometimes do without realizing they're doing it is they'll get to a certain detail in the metaphor and they'll take it as literal. They don't make any translation out of that one. They leave it in its metaphoric form. And in doing so, they fail to understand what it was picturing. They just assume it meant what it said. classic example of that is in the warnings of Hebrews, just as a little example. Particularly in Hebrews 6, when it talks about the, the field that receives the rain and produces a, a crop. When it does not produce a crop, it is burned. And people who know that that's speaking of what a believer will experience, they get to that last step and they say, oh, a field that's burned, burning must mean hell. Uh-uh. That's taking the metaphor literally. Burning stands for something, just like the field stood for something, just like the rain stood for something, just like everything in there stood for something. Burning is not literal, it stands for something. What does fire stand for when it's not meant literally? Judgment. Judgment. What is the judgment for a believer? The judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment. The judgment for reward, not the judgment for death and sin, right? So it's a judgment, yes, but it's not that judgment. It's the believer's judgment. But when we fail to make that translation, burning is judgment, and just assume burning is hell, well, we've just gone off-road. We've taken the metaphor and made it literal. That's a classic mistake. If you try to go back to any metaphor that you've struggled with, make sure you're not doing that, and you'll find that there's probably an answer you've missed. Here's an example of that. If you think this is a picture of God saying, I'm going to bring dead bodies back to life, you've taken the metaphor and made it literal. Our job is to move it into the literal. All right? And the reason we know it's not meant literally is because this is not how resurrection works literally. So that forces us to look at it as illustration. All right? That's a little Bible interpretation lesson for you. That was free. All right. So... If you notice, then we must be looking at a form of, res- of restoration of something that happens in stages. Because in this metaphor, in the illustration, it happened in stages. So that must be integral to our understanding of what God plans to do. He's telling Ezekiel, there's something I'm going to restore, and it's going to happen in stages. Also, notice at the end, the prominence of the word breath. In fact, if you count it, the word breath occurs eight times in just that short end of the passage. And the number eight in the Bible has a symbolic meaning. What does it stand for? The eighth day on a, is new, new beginnings, new week. Eighth day is a new week. You get circumcised on the eighth day because that's the start of someone's new life in the body of Israel. And 
8 has that meaning in Scripture of, of new beginnings. So this would indicate that God is saying by his breath, I mean, the breath of God is going to be part of a new beginning of some sort. And the last detail that's worth noting there is the word breath in Hebrew is the same word for spirit, ruach, which suggests that the spirit is the one working to bring this back, something back to life. And then lastly, you have the, con- the context of Ezekiel 37. In trying to interpret all that we just saw here, we want to make sure we keep it in the context of what God is doing in the surrounding chapters. What's going on in chapter 36 and in 38, and what's the big picture? Well, I gave you the, the chart with all the green and gray on it or whatever. That's, that's the context. What's the context then? Well, we know this chapter is talking about how God restores Israel in the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. It's part of that narrative. So that would lead us to consider that these dry bones must be a picture of the scattering of the apparent death of the nation, something that makes it appear as though the nation is gone and can't receive what Abraham has been promised, and now God is going to show how that is not true, and he's going to yet restore Israel to the promises. Okay? Based on how Israel was scattered from her land historically, we know the nation appeared to have died for many centuries. People thought it died. In fact, we have theology in the church still today that is built on an assumption that Israel has died. We call it replacement theology, and it's not correct. Now, remember, when Israel was gone from the scene, no longer a nation, you know, thought to be dead, if you will, as a nation, were Jews all gone too? No, not, on, not at all. In fact, that's a premise of Scripture. God always keeps his remnant. So Israel's people, the bodies, the human bodies, if you will, they weren't dead. Just the nation was dead. That starts to narrow our interpretation a little because now I cannot say that the death, the bones, if you will, all the dead things in the valley, that can't represent the people of Israel, for the people of Israel have never been fully extinguished. All right, They've always existed. So whatever this group of bones represents, it's not literally the people of Israel, but rather the nation. The idea of a group living in their own land and called a nation on the earth. For a period of history, for a long period of history, there was no nation of Israel on earth, just a people of Jews scattered. And so what the Lord is promising here is that his people will dwell securely and peacefully in a place of their own called as a nation. And this vision is his assurance to that people that I will bring you back from the apparent death of your scattering, from the apparent oblivion of your existence into something that I've told you you will have, a nation coming back to life, if you will. And furthermore, that restoration process will take place in stages. That's an important aspect of the promise. Not all at once. It will not be that one day Israel has no land and no people on, you know, it's just suddenly not on the map. The next day, every living Jew is in the land on day one. No, that would be an instantaneous response. That's not the plan. The plan is in stages. So, in other words, as God fulfills this promise that he's showing in chapter 37, it will be evident to anyone watching that the bones are getting sinew, the bones are getting flesh, the bodies are coming back together. It will be evident to anyone that the Lord is at work putting Israel back in its place. And, of course, in our day, we see that very thing happening. So it's a pretty interesting thing to know this book was written so long ago, and this prophecy is happening just in the last century, more or less. That's the the moment. And then the very last step of the prophecy, the very last step of the picture, is the breath being breathed in and the body standing up and being alive. Well, if we take the word breath with ruach, knowing that it's another way of saying spirit, And we know the Spirit of God is what brings us spiritual life. That suggests that that last step of breath is the moment in which he takes Israel as a whole, brings them into their land, but then brings them salvation. The national salvation moment of Israel. So that they're not just in the land as one nation, but they're in the land as one nation, and they are God's people. That's the last step. So let's see if that interpretation lines up with what he says next. Verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, meaning the people of the world say, and Israel says, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Now notice, they're still alive to speak. So it's not referring to the people, right? They're still alive to speak, but they say, we are cut off. Verse 12, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I've opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. So in my estimation, he's affirmed the interpretation I gave you. It shouldn't be a surprise. Obviously, I knew this was coming. But the point is, 
when you do a proper observation of the text, you should get to the right answer. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Verse 11, he confirms it. He says, the bones represent the whole house of Israel. They do not represent the members of the house of Israel, as in certain Jews that lived at a certain point in history or some such thing. Rather, he says, that scene of all the bones, they collectively picture a single thing, the house of Israel, the nation. So we could say house here could be replaced with the word nation, the nation of Israel. And so it's a picture of the restoration of the nation. Verse 12, he says, The people of Israel are saying to themselves and lamenting, Oh, we've lost our nation. We've been cut off. That's another clear indication that we're talking about the national identity. They, they acknowledge they're still Jews, but they say we've been cut off from our land, from our identity in the land. That phrase speaks of a period of history, and we're, we're seeing that come to an end now. Okay? And at the turn of the last century, when Jews saw the opportunity to begin returning to the land, when Zionism came to be, what started to happen? Well, first it was a trickle, then it was a war, then it was a steady flood, and then you know, you've seen the movement of this renewal coming in stages. And anyone who's been watching with any eyes to see would look at chapter 37 of Ezekiel and say, yep, sinew, yep, flesh, yep, there it's going, right? We're just watching it happen. We just got to get to the breath part. Well, how much longer after you see the flesh and the skin grow does the breath show up? Not that long. I mean, we don't know the timing, but my point is uh, we're at the very end of something. Made evident by the way this prophecy plays out. Here again, one of many places in the Bible you could go to show someone, how do you know we're in the end times? Let me show you. Let me show you this. And and, of course, it doesn't come in one verse. That's the problem with those conversations. Thus we will be in the end times in 2000 and, you know, it doesn't say that. But you go through this process with someone, if they watch you and follow it with you, you get to the end and they say, I guess you're right. If that's what he said was happening and that's what the end looks like, well, we're right near it, aren't we? We're right near it. All right, now at this point, Let's be careful not to move out of the illustration again and into a literal view. Because in the vision that God is still explaining, he says, it's like you are coming out of your graves, he said. Here again, it's an extension of the metaphor that we started with. All right, bones on the ground, them coming to life is like coming out of a grave, so to speak. Okay, this is not a change in the conversation to start talking about literal resurrections. It's still metaphor being described in terms of a nation coming back into the land. And you can see that because in the very end, he sums up his interpretation. Verse 14, how does he say it? He says, the sum effect of all of this is going to be a nation back in its land. That's the point he's trying to make. That leads to the next illustration, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it, For Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. And then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. This is a great moment for an illustration if I was a better preacher, but if you had two sticks and put them one on either side and closed the gap with your hand, that's what he's saying. If you looked at it, you'd think it was one stick in his hand. That's what he's doing. Okay? And the Lord's saying, now imagine those two things to be nations of people and imagine my hand, God's hand. That's what he says. That's what you're seeing illustrated in in what Ezekiel's doing. One stick is Judah. You know, that's the reference to the southern kingdom that broke off after Solomon. And, of course, Ephraim is the reference to the northern kingdom that broke off. Why do we use these two names to represent those two kingdoms? Largest tribes. Judah is the largest of what was in the south. Ephraim was the largest of what was in the north in terms of power and prominence. Uh, just to give you an example, that would be like saying that the, the continental United States is Texas because we're the largest state in, in the union in this continental United States. It's just a quick way of summing up that nation by using that term. So the Lord interprets the illustration this way. For those who couldn't figure it out by just looking, he says, I'm telling them I'm going to bring their people back together in one. Now, obviously, this illustration works off the earlier one. The earlier one was, hey, we're going to make the nation come back to life and put it back in its land. But he's adding another detail here. He's saying that the reemergence of the nation of Israel onto the world stage will not be in the form it had when it disappeared. Remember how it was when it disappeared? It was already split. One half got hauled off by Assyria a few centuries later. The other half gets hauled off by Babylon. Some come back, and then later it's it's, uh, the Greeks, and later it's the Romans, and finally they're just gone. 
And they have to deal with Ottomans and so on. But by the time all that starts happening, they had split. What he's saying now is, you're going to have one king, one kingdom, one nation when this comes back, not two. And in the future, those two kingdoms being united will mean that the term Israel will mean only one thing. No more asterisks next to who you're talking about. Verse 20, he says, The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before your eyes. Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And there will no longer be two nations, no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of the transgressions. I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. Here again, exactly the interpretation you would expect. Nothing surprising here. Let's move on real quickly though from that to what he says next, which is a little different. He says, verse 24, My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. I have some interesting things here, and it leads us into the next chapter. We read a few chapters earlier on the topic of leadership. Remember, they needed to have a shepherd because their prior shepherds, their human shepherds had done so poorly. And God promised that he would raise up a shepherd, a king, who would lead them properly. All right? And back in that chapter, and back in chapter 34 when we looked at that, he mentions there that David would be the prince of Israel in that coming day. Not, David is not the, the shepherd that he was referring to. That's Christ, who's king of the world. But David would also be there, and that's natural. We'd expect David to be counted among the righteous who would enter into Israel, obviously. So David will return. He'll be resurrected like any saint. And he gets his old job back. He's on the throne. But in a different sense, he returns to rule over Israel. Now, in the passage I just read, it says, verse 24, David will be king. Now, the passage we read back in chapter 34 called him prince. Now, later in the same passage, it says prince again. But why king? Doesn't that cause confusion? I mean, is it Jesus or is it David, right? The reason for that difference in terminology stems from the difference in purpose between the two chapters. Think about it for a minute. In chapter 34, what was the purpose? It was to establish that there would be good leadership for Israel when before there never had been, right? And the Lord's main point in that chapter was, you can depend on the Lord to provide a good shepherd. So in that chapter, who's the real focus? Christ. But then he acknowledges that David himself will be there as well, ruling as prince. And that's why the word prince is used in chapter 34. But if you go back and look at where it's mentioned in chapter 34, you'll notice that right after David gets mentioned as prince, the next thing that God says, he follows it very quickly with this statement that the Lord would be God and David would be the Lord's servant. So there's a very quick quick clarification for anyone who reads in chapter 34 that, yeah, David's there, he's prince, but he's not the top guy. He's serving God who's above, okay? The point is that there be shepherding and the Lord is watching to make sure it's done right. Now in this chapter, what's the topic? Well, we're not talking about shepherding now. The topic is that the people would be one in the land. And to emphasize the oneness of Israel in this new form, the Lord says they're going to have the same human leader, David. Now think back to the history of Israel. Over what kind of Israel did David preside over? A united single nation, right? The nation split after David when his son died, Solomon, right? So to say that David will be king is to say to any Jew, one nation, because it reminds them of their history when that was the case, right? And in context, the Lord calls David king here to reinforce that idea of a one nation ruler, not, not to contradict the earlier statement that God has Christ as king, just to use the term for a moment to set the 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 point in the mind of Jews that they're going to have one nation. In fact, as I mentioned, you look at the end of verse 25 tonight, where we read, you notice the Lord uses the term prince again, just to remind us that don't get carried away. David's not in charge of everything. He's just in charge of Israel under Christ. All right. Then notice also, the Lord will make a covenant of peace. Now, I told you this in a prior night. There's a new covenant coming beyond and besides the new covenant. And this is a covenant God establishes with Israel in the millennial kingdom called the Peace Covenant. 
And it's part of restoring the Abrahamic covenant. It's part of fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Listen to some of the covenant language that's in Genesis and see if you can't hear it. Like Genesis 12, 2, he says to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation, I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Hold that. Genesis fifteen eighteen, he says to Abraham again, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Genesis twenty two fifteen. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. That's the people promise. And your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. And then lastly, Genesis 28, when he moved down the chain and he spoke to one of Abraham's descendants, he says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, this is to Jacob, Jacob's ladder. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, if you listen to those promises and you start to understand what they're saying, then there are certain implications That is, if God's going to do what he said, certain other things will also have to happen. The Lord says to Abraham, for example, he will be a nation, and out of him an uncountable number of people will come out and live in the land as one, and that the nation would be blessed and be a blessing. And then he promised later that the nation would possess the gates of its enemies. And all of that is a way of saying, no enemy of Israel will be able to stand against the nation in the day when the Lord puts them as one in the land. Nothing will divide them. Nothing will take away their blessing. Nothing will give them any cause for threat. Those are all implications of what God is saying he will do for the nation of Israel. So all of those promises imply peace in their dwelling place. No enemy to threaten them. So think about this for a minute. That's what the Abrahamic covenant said will be true. Why does God need to give them a peace covenant? The Lord says, I'm going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant by giving you a peace covenant once you're in the kingdom, which almost seems like you're closing the barn door after the horse has already got out. If they're in the land already, if they've been given the benefits of glorified bodies, the spirit living in them, God dwelling among them, the temple right there with them, God ruling the world in perfect peace, rod of iron, I mean... Where's the threat? Why do they need a peace covenant? What's the point of doing it at that stage? It's not that God's their adversary anymore. They've got God living in them. They're perfectly obedient. There's not going to be any more adversarial relationship with God. Who else is going to threaten them? All right? The point we're hearing here is that God needs a peace covenant because there will be a threat. There will be a threat. God is not saying Israel will have no enemies in the kingdom. God is saying those enemies will have no power against Israel in the kingdom. The peace covenant that God is promising Israel is a covenant that says, I will prevent the enemies that you have in the kingdom from ever taking your peace in the kingdom. In fact, if you think about it for a moment, a peace covenant is a hollow gesture if there is nothing or no one remaining who could take away your peace. More than that, How do you know God is being faithful to a peace covenant if there's nothing that could take away the peace? It's like the problem of light versus dark. If I don't have such thing as dark, then light has no meaning. It's an incomprehensible concept. So there's obviously a need for it. In fact, if you look at a couple places in Scripture, you begin to see it. Zechariah, when he speaks about the times of the kingdom and what life is like for Israel in the kingdom, Zechariah 14, verse 9, we hear this. The Lord will be king over all the earth. Obviously a reference to the kingdom. And in that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain, into a valley, from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site, from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it. There will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. No doubt that's talking about the kingdom, right? Okay, go down just a few verses to verse 16 of that same chapter, and then it says this. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem 
will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem and to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This is in the kingdom. All right? We know there's sin in the kingdom. We've covered that here in the past because natural men and women, that is, not glorified bodies, enter the kingdom. They come in as believers, but they have children. And the children of a natural person comes with original sin. So sin continues to propagate for the kingdom time. Those of us who've been saved, resurrected, and glorified, none of that applies to us. So there's two kinds of humanity in the kingdom. Two classes of humanity. The glorified, sinless, eternal bodies and the natural human beings that we're ruling over. That only makes sense, right? We're there to rule. If no one had sin, there'd be nothing to rule over because everyone would be doing the right thing. Rule itself is a process of causing people to do the right thing. So we have to rule because there is people there who need ruling. That's the whole system that God has set up. So even though the world is ruled by Christ and we rule with Him, nonetheless, sin remains. And because sin remains, problems happen. And when there's problems, God in His perfect justice deals with them. And once in a while, we're told a family or a tribe or maybe a whole nation won't want to honor the king. They they will not obey the command to come to Israel to celebrate. And one of the feasts, and perhaps the only one that we know today, that carries over into the kingdom is the Feast of Booths. And that's the feast in the Jewish calendar that recognizes God dwelling among his people. Which would make sense then to see that one celebrated in the kingdom, right? There'll be people refusing it, and God will respond with a drought. While there alone we have a clear indication there will be opposition to God, and therefore by extension to God's people who he dwells with in the kingdom. And in verse 37, the Lord tells Israel that he will fulfill his promise to Abraham to bring them into the land and let them live securely. But in order for him to show them that he is going to let them live there securely, he has got to give some opportunity for opposition so that he can put it down. Is this making sense? All right. So what do you think the next chapter is about? The next chapter is a prophecy of the day to come when the nations will try to take Israel's peace and God will respond according to the terms of the peace covenant and prevent that nation from seeing its peace taken away from it. And he will do it supernaturally. We're not going to do much in 38 tonight because we have five minutes, but I thought tonight I'd like to give an intro so that you know what's coming in the next week as we get into Ezekiel's war. The chapter that follows, 38, and the one that comes after that, 39, is one of the best-known sections of the book of Ezekiel typically called Ezekiel's War. There's books by that title written on the two chapters. Before we dive into the text, I want to give you a bit of background about the various interpretations that circulate about these two chapters. Probably the biggest disagreement you'll see among those interpretations is when does this event take place? When in history does this war take place? And there's basically four options, four periods of history when Bible students will tell you that the war takes place. I'm just going to summarize them for you. I'm not going to try to resolve them for you here, because as I did earlier tonight, as we go through the text, it will teach you what time it happens in. I don't need to do it. That is, I don't need to tell you up front. All right? First, the first one you'll hear claimed is that this war never happens in any literal sense because it's just symbolic, that in other words, it's just a story representing God's ultimate victory over Satan and and Israel's enemies. The second view that you will find is that, yes, it's literal, and it happens in our time before the start of tribulation. So that would be the view that says it could happen today, it could happen at any time. The third view would tell you that, no, this happens during tribulation. In fact, these are some of the circumstances that are happening when you read the judgments of tribulation, like the seals and the bowls and so on. That's part of what you're seeing happen here. And then the fourth view says, no, this happens near the end of the kingdom period, the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. As we go through the text, the details will tell you that three of those are wrong. So we're going to see the final answer as we get through it, but let's just start at the very beginning. We're only going to do a little bit tonight. I just want to introduce the actors, because that's how the the chapter begins. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, 
Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomor with its troops, Beth Togomar from the remotest parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be on guard for them. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. All right. This is the, just in case anyone is keeping track at this level, uh, this is the sixth and last message that Ezekiel received as part of the prophecies he got on the day before the exiles came in from Babylon. Back when we said that he was giving prophecy right before the exiles of Jerusalem returned and told everyone our city just got destroyed, the day before the exiles learned that Nebuchadnezzar had ruined and destroyed their city, they're hearing these things. That's an interesting pairing up that God is doing here, right? On the one hand, they're about to hear that their nation has essentially just been wiped off the map. That's coming in 24 hours. They're going to learn that news. Meanwhile, they're hearing God saying, you've got a glorious future in the land. Isn't God good about that? Right as they're hearing the worst news they could possibly hear, he's just prepped them with, but I've got a better story for you, and it's coming. So in the beginning, the Lord tells Ezekiel, I'm going to speak about a certain leader and certain nations. And he says, I'm going to gather this leader and these nations, and I'm going to cause them to engage in an attack against Israel. Now, before we look at the, la- the names here and all that, don't overlook the most important actor in this chapter, the Lord. Did you notice that? The Lord says plainly. I am going to instigate this battle. I'm going to put hooks into the jaws of these nations and their leader, and I'm going to lead them to do my will here. This is not God saying, oh, there's some bad actors getting ready to to bust down your door, Israel, but don't worry, I'm standing by you. This is the Lord saying, I'm going to go looking for some bad actors to come bust down your door, Israel, so I can stand by you. All right? Remember Isaiah 55, 11? I am the Lord who creates both blessings and calamity. I'm the Lord who does both. Here you see him doing the backside of that, right? He instigates it. So whatever else, and this is an important detail for interpreting the timing, whatever else you say about this war, including when you say it happens, you have to agree that it's being caused by the Lord. And that becomes a fundamental question you have to answer to defend the time period of history that you say this happens. Why? Because whatever time period you select for this battle... You have to have an explanation for why the Lord wanted it to happen then. Because he's making it happen. Why did he need it to happen in that period of history? It can't merely be a random act in the course of history because God has purposed it to happen. And he doesn't do things in a cavalier, capricious way. There's always reason behind it. So what would be the reason for it to happen then or then or then? And if you don't have an answer to that, you probably don't want to hang your hat on that interpretation too firmly. All right, I'm going to give you that, of course, in my interpretation when we get there. Moving to the names of the people, you find a few strange names. You find a few familiar names. Uh, First, he says to Ezekiel, look to the land of Magog. Now, many of the place names you're going to see here, like Magog, trace the back to the names of the Table of Nations, which is the, the, the title we give to chapter 10 of Genesis. The Table of Nations, chapter 10 of Genesis. In there, you see the distribution of people off the ark and, and how that put people around the world in different uh, ethnicities, if you will. So Noah's son, Japheth, he's responsible for basically Europe and East Asia. All right? And he walks off the ark, and he initially goes to what is Eastern Europe today, and present-day Turkey. And among Japheth's sons who settle in that region were a son called Magog, and a son called Meshach, and a son called Tubal. Those are the sons of Japheth, Noah's son. Those are Noah's grandsons. The land that those men all settled is on the map, as you see. And then you add to that the name Rosh. Rosh is a little bit more uh, mysterious. He's not the name of any son in the Table of Nations, so we don't know quite where the name started. Uh, The origin is mysterious. But if you assume it's in the same general region, because God groups them all, that grouping, all those names and the region of land that they represent, all of them are ruled by a single person, a man who goes by the title Gog who is also called the Prince of Rosh. That's the same person. All right? The word Gog is not a name, it's a title. Sort of like Pharaoh or Caesar. So this oracle is being spoken against some world leader with the title Gog who rules a vast area of land somewhere around present-day Turkey. But because those place names are so general and we just don't exactly know where they settled, the entire region north of Israel is 
potentially what we're talking about here. So places today like Syria, Georgia, Armenia, Russia, perhaps others, that whole region is really involved in this, and we just can't say how far it goes. It's not important, really. It's just up there. That king will be joined by allies from Persia, Ethiopia, and Put. Persia's easy. That's the name for present-day Iran. Ethiopia is also Ethiopia today, but it also includes, historically, Somalia and Etria, those other nations. So that whole uh, uh, part of Africa. And if you look at those areas on a map, what you realize is the army that's coming against Israel consists of people from the north, the south, and the east. Now, what's on the west side of Israel? A sea. So that would mean that nations are coming against Israel only on land. That's an important detail. And as a result, they're coming from every possible direction that land allows. They're surrounding Israel. All right? Next, I want you to notice the people that the Lord causes these nations to assemble from among their peoples a great army to come up against Israel. But look at how the army is equipped. In fact, this is a detail I've never seen anyone highlight in their analysis of these chapters, and I think it's absolutely fundamental to interpreting the timeline. They are equipped in an incredibly rudimentary way. They rely on horses. And no, these are not symbolic mentions. Do not start telling yourself, well, that's a tank. That is not hermeneutically accurate because nothing in the text suggests that any of these details are symbolic. In fact, the descriptions we get later of the horses are so specific that it rules out any thought that we're talking about something that's a tank or whatever you want to call it, a car. They're literally riding horses. Now, if an army only has horses for transportation, that would explain why they don't attack by sea. Secondly, the weaponry is very rudimentary. By current standards, certainly. Helmets and shields are mentioned here. But if you go to chapter 39, which we will later, obviously, we find out that the helmets and shields are made of wood. Moreover, so are the spears and clubs and shields and bows and arrows that are mentioned in chapter 39. Everything they're using is made of wood. There is no metal being used at all. That detail will also help us date the prophecy. Verse 7, the Lord directs them to first prepare for battle, he says. Verse 7, prepare for it. Spend some time getting ready for it. This is not an instantaneous act. It's not like they just all of a sudden decide on a moment, hey, we should go attack. There is forethought, malice of forethought. And during that time, he says, they are on guard. Be on guard. Don't let anyone discover what you're doing. Don't let anyone get in the way or try to stop you. And then he says, notice, after many days of preparation and waiting, the Lord will determine the timing. He will summon the vast army into action when he's ready for it to, to attack and when it suits his purposes and desires. And finally, and this is where we end tonight, notice the attack will come against a land that has been, it says, quote, restored from the sword, another area of, I think, very unfortunate interpretation. The word for restored in Hebrew is the word shuv, and what, it has a lot of shades of meaning. If you look at it in the dictionary, the shades of meaning are like this. It's one of those words that can mean a hundred things in, in ancient Hebrew. In this context, what's the best interpretation then? What's the best interpretation of that word? It would be to turn away from or to put away. In other words, it is a land, Israel is a land that has been restored from the sword, that has put away the sword. The land is defenseless. The land has no military. It has no weaponry because none has been needed. It never imagined a need for it. Why? Notice the end of verse 8. Because they're living in the land securely. They have no need for weaponry because they had no expectation of attack because they had no enemy. Nothing's threatened their security. So they've been restored from it. The, the need of it has been taken away. Furthermore, notice the inhabitants have been placed in their land having come from many nations. Well, that's a clear reference to the regathering of Israel. And notice they're all living on the mountains of Israel. Another very important phrase. When you see the Bible refer to Israel living on mountains, it's never spoken of in any context except the kingdom. Today, for example, we don't hear the Bible refer to Israel living on the mountains of Israel, or in the past even. That's a reference that's always looking forward to the mountains of Israel because, in what we'll learn later in this book, the way the, the topography looks in that day, the mountain on which Jerusalem sits is the highest mountain on earth, the Bible says. In the day of the kingdom, Mount Everest is in Jerusalem, so to speak. And that's why it's referred to living on the mountain when you think of the future Israel state, okay? And it's notice it says this is a land that before they arrived was a continual waste until God made it great and useful for Israel. We've been reading about that. And then finally, the little phrase at the end of verse 8, it says, who among Israel will be living in this land? All of them. 
This time, whenever you want to put it in history, is a time in which all Jews will live in Israel, not just some. All of them. All of those details are important clues to picking the right period of history in which this event takes place. Not, not to mention the context in which we see this chapter appearing. That is, God showing how he's going to restore peace and ensure it in the land. So he is orchestrating an event exactly at a timing of his choice so that he can demonstrate to Israel that, yes, you in fact do have a defender, and in fact, yes, your peace is secure no matter what comes at you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for letting us walk patiently through Scripture and giving us a heart and mind that pays close attention to details and, most of all, that your Spirit would walk us through it with great understanding. But, Father, we do it with the weakness of men and women who, though we may try to reach the right answer, we will fail at times. And uh, we ask, Lord, that should that be happening now or in days or weeks to come, that you would correct our hearts. Show us the truth as only you can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.